Hi, and welcome to another of the Room and Room podcasts. Look, we really appreciate you coming back and tuning into another of our episodes. So, just a background if this is one of the first ones you've listened to. Look, the Room and Room podcasts are actually an, an offshoot of the popular Facebook ruminant nutrition group, The Room and Room, uh, all of which is proudly supported by our sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds. To introduce myself, my name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and a nutritionist based here in Lincoln and Canterbury in New Zealand. Okay, so in this episode, this is actually part one of a two-part series all to do with the deposition of intramuscular fat in our finishing red meat species, sheep and cattle. Now, if it's okay with you before we go much further, uh, I'm going to get sick of saying intramuscular fat, uh, just as you're going to get sick of listening to it. So how about, uh, if it's okay with you, we're just going to shorten that up to IMF. So IMF, intramuscular fat. So that'll hopefully uh, make the podcast flow a little bit better. But anyway, back to this part one of a two-part series about IMF. What we're going to do, we will cover off much of the basics around IMF deposition for finishing lambs and cattle. Then uh, we're going to split this in two, and in the second part of this two-part series, so that's going to be episode number 33, we're going to focus more at the farm level on the animal and nutritional aspects around IMF deposition and finishing sheep and cattle. So when we cover that second part, we will unashamedly take quite a New Zealand-based focus on IMF in our forage-based finishing systems as opposed to some of the feedlot systems overseas. But we will sort of cross backwards and forwards in episode two between uh, feedlotting and forage-based systems. But overall across each of these two-part IMF-focused episodes, we will hopefully just give you some ideas and maybe some tips and tricks for those of you who are currently finishing lambs and cattle, but who are looking to potentially work more towards ending up with a premium product that will attract appropriately uh, targeted premium pricing to reward you for any higher IMF product that you do end up producing. What are we going to cover in this part one of a two-part series? Well, First up, what we'll aim to do is to define just what IMF is for those of you that are new to thinking around meat composition from an INF perspective. Then, second up, we'll move then on to talking about why do the consumers of our red meat products consider IMF to be really desirable, um, better eating experience and all those sorts of things, and explain a little bit why IMF can improve that. And then the final third part that we'll cover off in this first episode is going to be a more detailed dive into fat metabolism. Now, we won't leave IMF totally out of those discussions, but hopefully it'll help make a little bit more sense when we get into how through understanding fat meta metabolism, how the nutritional aspects that we'll cover off in the next episode actually all fit together as IMF relates to other fat depots throughout the body. And then when we've done this episode, keep an ear out for the second part of a two-part series because, as we mentioned, we'll move then on to the animal-based factors that impact on IMF and then finishing up with the nutritional drivers of IMF and older finishing animals. In the meantime, let's get this IMF topic underway. 
First up, what is IMF? Well, as we've already mentioned, and shortening it up to keep it simple, IMF stands for intramuscular fat. So if we break that term into two parts, when we say intra, of intramuscular, that means within, inside the bundle of muscle fibres, and then muscular, (laughs) as in the term muscle, is to do with the muscle that makes up the red meat of our finishing animals. So IMF describes the location of fat within the body of a muscle. And when we mean muscle, as far as IMF goes, what we mean is the skeletal muscles of our finishing species, sheep and cattle. In other words, skeletal means the muscles that help an animal to stand up and to move around when they're walking around grazing and and doing their thing. So in contrast to skeletal muscle, there's another type of broader description of muscle within the animal, which is the smooth muscle, which uh, describes the involuntary muscles um, moving of the gut to move digester through the gut. Now, when we talk about IMF, we're talking specifically about inside the skeletal muscles, but not the smooth muscles. I hope that makes sense. Look, before we carry on further about what IMF is, let's just talk about marbling, because some of you are probably saying, what is IMF, Charlotte? Uh, What are you talking about? Is it the same as marbling? IMF and marbling are highly correlated with one another, but strictly speaking, IMF is more of what we call a laboratory measure that's measured inside the laboratory in a chemical sense, with IMF described uh, as a percentage on a unit basis per gram or kilogram of red meat. On the other hand, those of you particularly that have worked in abattoirs, um, meat works, where you've seen graders in action describing marbling in a semi-quantitative sense, which describes in a more subjective sense as an estimate of the amount of the distribution and also of the texture of those visible flecks of intramuscular fat that you can see within uh, the ribeye muscle of each animal. IMF is a chemical measure, a percentage of IMS expressed per unit of red meat, and this is highly correlated with the semi-quantitative, more subjective marbling score based on the skill of a highly trained grader who looks at that, feels and has a look around and then apportions a measure, a value based on the marbling score. Hopefully that makes sense. Also, as far as IMF and marbling, whatever you want to call it, uh, goes, we're limiting this podcast to an IMF discussion around sheep and beef, red meat, but we do acknowledge marbling as a similarly hot topic, for example, the pork industry. But uh, as the rumen room, we'll keep this topic limited to things with a rumen, which excludes pigs, and we'll leave that pork discussion out of this particular podcast. Moving on to the next topic of this IMF marbling episode, whatever you want to call it, we'll leave that alone. Why do the consumers of our red meat enjoy meat that contain higher levels of IMF? For example, the American consumers who are very much in favour of grass-fed beef really, really like those IMF levels in that grass 
finished beef to contain more than 2% IMF. So the consumers are starting to tell us that they want specific lower limits, like a minimum of IMF, for example, in their grass-finished beef is one quantitative example of what the consumers are asking for. Now, why the consumers wanting this level of IMF in their grass-fed beef? Well, there's lots of reasons that have been suggested and researched about why a higher IMF level in a steak, perhaps, makes the eating experience of that steak so much tastier compared to low IMF steaks. Well, firstly, it's to do with a better aroma. Mm, You know, it's in the pan, it's cooking. And then finally, the flavour when the consumer eats our higher IMF meat or steaks. Now, there's a couple of reasons that the researchers tell us why IMF might favour both the aroma and the taste of high IMF meat or steaks. And the first point is is that during the cooking process, if you've got more IMF present in your steak, apparently the fat conducts heat more slowly than the red meat part, the muscle, that contains relatively more water than the fat tissue does. Fat tissue contains relatively little water, low amounts, less than 20% on a weight-for-weight basis. On the other hand, there's a lot of water present in the red meat part of a steak, and that muscle part of the steak, with a bit of connective tissue often present as well, contains a lot more water, maybe 80% or more on a weight-for-weight basis, and that water present in the red part of the meat conducts heat a lot better than the fat does. And so apparently these higher IMF stakes, because uh, there's less water to conduct heat into the inside of that steak, the steak takes longer to reach a higher internal temperature. And apparently that allows for more time during the cooking process to generate those beautiful aromas. As well, ultimately, when you come to consume that, there's a better, tastier flavour associated with these higher IMF steaks. And then the second theory around more IMF fat changing the taste and the aroma during the cooking process is that, on average, the IMF fat contains more of the long-chain, what we call polyunsaturated fatty acids, including the very good omega-3 fats that are good for human health. Now, these longer-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids that are naturally occurring in the IMF fat within meat have a relatively lower melting point than the melting point of the subcutaneous or back fat, you know, perhaps on a steak, that big strip of fat along the outside. Now, those longer-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, including omega-3, have a lower melting point. So the IMF fat becomes liquid at a lower temperature compared to the relatively higher melting point of other types of fat on the meat, for for example, subcutaneous or back fat, uh, or indeed the intermuscular fat, which we'll come back to shortly, that resides between the muscle groups. Now, that lower melting point also changes the cooking and also the eating experience, the melt-in-your-mouth, lovely, softer fat. Another reason why high IMF fat may be favoured by consumers compared to low IMF fat is that, on average, a high IMF steak in the pan and then on your plate can be juicier than a low IMF steak. Now, that apparently, the juicier texture, 
is because the higher IMF meat suffers, on average, less what's called drip loss or water loss during cooking and um, when you're standing and after cooking, simply because there's more fat relative to muscle. And remember that fat contains less water than the muscle component overall all contributing to a juicier steak. I hope you've had your dinner when you're listening to this. This is making me hungry. So yet another key reason for a tastier eating experience for a high IMF steak is that more IMF reduces the bulk density of steak, meaning there's less muscle fibre and associated connective tissue. Potentially, if there's a lot of connective tissue, that makes your steak chewy. So the presence of more IMF is quite literally diluting down the more chewy parts of the steak. Uh, that's connective tissue and just simply overall making that a nicer steak to eat. As well, another reason why we think that the high IMF meat is more tender from an eating experience compared to a low IMF steak is thought to be because where we have a greater number of bigger IMF fat cells within the muscle bundles, this IMF apparently can disrupt or essentially open up the organisation of that intramuscular connective tissue, again, making the eating experience a whole lot nicer. Anyway, that's a long story short around the theory, explaining for those of you who really like a well-marbled high IMF steak to explain why that tastes so good. You probably don't care why at the end of the day, why your high IMF steak tastes a whole lot better than low marbled steak. But anyway, for those of you with the curiosity, I guess, of understanding why, but why does it taste better, that's some of the theories. That said, let's get this podcast back on track. That's why the consumers like our high IMF. And also, when really to reiterate that point, when we have more IMF, it's also more polyunsaturated fatty acids, more omega-3, and that's healthier for us as a consumer. Let's kind of back the bus up here around fat. So fat is not limited, of course, to intramuscular fat. We also find fat in other parts of the carcass. So we're going to talk about some of the other fat depots and their relationship to intramuscular fat. First up, let's define, let's go back to kind of 101 basics, why body fat, including IMF, is needed and is important for animals on a day-to-day basis. Well, look, first up, fat is, of course, for the animal just as important for us also as an important energy reserves for animals. Let's say uh, we've hit the first winter storm of the season. We have some well-conditioned, good back fat present uh, on our animals and we get snow on the ground for a couple of days. Our grazing animals really are foraging around and not able to find a lot of feed, although hopefully you're off to the rescue to feed out some baleage or hay to them. But look, if there is snow on the ground and there's not really available feed, that fat source, the fat reserves, of course, come in real handy as an energy source and the animal will mobilise some of that back fat, the internal fat as well, we're going to talk about shortly, And 
that will cover their energy and nutrient demands until they can successfully forage for feed once again. That is, of course, an important reserve for when things come a bit unstuck. We don't have the same access for our animals to feed uh, and or the feed is of very poor quality or something has gone wrong. So the fat kind of buffers an animal for day to day if the going gets tough. While we're talking about fat reserves, you'll probably all be aware with your young newborn neonatal animals of a different type of fat, and that's called brown fat uh, or brown adipose tissue, BAT. And this type of fat's really important for the survivability of your young neonatal animals if they are born in very cold conditions. Now, brown fat is more than just a reserve of nutrients. It's actually a type of fat that metabolically really, uh, the rubber hits the road, if you like, when a young animal needs it and is metabolised very, very quickly to generate heat in a very short period of time. So it's not just supplying energy for nutrient supply, but generating heat. It's like really turning on a fan heater when these animals need it the most. So brown fat is probably a topic another day to talk about survivability of newborn animals. But yeah, brown fat's another topic, but we're talking about white fat, uh, which is including intramuscular fat and internal fat and subcut fat. Brown fat's needed to really pump some heat out uh, when young animals need it. So that's an energy aspect around fat, but also the brown fat for newborn animals. What's another important role for that white fat, so that internal fat, visceral fat, uh, or subcutaneous fat? It is Mother Nature's cushioning system, if you'd like, which means fat's very important for the protection of important structures within the animal. And what we mean by this is in the case of internal or what we might call visceral fat, you might call it channel fat, uh, where you've done a home kill. Now that's the internal fat that's found in the pelvis, uh, around the kidneys, and essentially that is the uh, the cushioning protecting those vital organs from harm. So you think about it, if you've got some cattle in the yard, got a couple dominant ones that are pushing other ones around and one gets pushed up against the rails and, and thumped, well, that internal fat is, of course, preventing any damage or hopefully preventing any damage to those essential organs inside that the animal needs simply to survive and, and carry on living. So hopefully a decent amount of internal fat will prevent damage to those critical internal organs. And I guess the same can be said for back fat or subcutaneous fat. That's the fat that we can see, run our hands over and condition score animals on. When they're well conditioned again, if there's a bit of argy-bargy in the yards, dominant animals are beating up on the submissive animals with the pecking order. Hopefully um, that back fat will mean less bruising in terms of deep tissue bruising and ultimately damage to deeper lying muscles or even the skeleton. Now moving on to another function for fat uh, in the body of the animal, and this is a functional one specifically for what we call intermuscular fat. Now that's the fat that is found between the bigger muscle groups that plays an important role from a functional point of view of allowing muscle groups to move over one another, so supporting the physical movement of muscle groups that align with one another. So that's an important role for essentially supporting good muscle movement. Finally, one other function of fat that we don't normally think about is that actually the broader fat groups across the, the whole animal 
act collectively as what we call an endocrine organ, where in other words, the fat produces hormones that help support the day-to-day activity of the animal doing their thing. Now, the main one that comes to mind that you might have heard of is one called leptin that's involved in helping regulate the feed intake of animals. Now, the way leptin works is that it helps contribute to what's called satiety. So if there's a lot of fat present in the animal, in theory, leptin should be released and help uh, to prevent an animal from overeating. Again, another story another day around how do animals regulate their dry matter intake. That's probably another topic we'll look at at some stage. But yeah, in the meantime, I guess we're getting a bit bogged down in the non-IMF or intramuscular fat topic. So we'll probably getting a bit boring, eh? But uh, we'll come back to that. But look, just summing up the, on these four broad categories of fat. First, we have the internal fat, otherwise it's called visceral fat inside the animal. Looks after those important internal organs. Then we have the subcutaneous or back fat that we can condition score an animal on. Then we have that inter, like between, inter between muscular fat uh, that the muscles slide around with. And then finally, we have our highly desirable, based on our consumers, in fact, our own desire for tasty steak, the intramuscular fat, IMF. So that's the four broad different places that an animal likes to stash its fat, if you'd like. When we focus, I guess, on these four different depots of fat storage, essentially we need to look at the timeline over which these different depots of fat are laid down as an animal ages. So let's start out first with a very young animal. Let's say uh, it's a young lamb or perhaps a young calf. Now, he or she is very much the teenager of the ruminant world. You know what they look like. They're all legs, um, um, long neck, very lean, a lot of lean tissue, so a lot of muscle and bone, and not a lot of fat in any of those fat depots, perhaps just a little internal fat that's starting to be laid down. Now, as our young, gangly teenager of the lamb and calf world starts to age and grow, bit by bit, we'll start to get more fat laid down as that animal ages and as it starts to become a heavier live weight expressed as a percentage of its final mature weight. Now, you'll remember those four different places that fat's deposited, you know, the visceral, the back fat or subcut fat, then inter, then intramuscular fat. Now, the reason we've discussed these in that particular order is actually for a reason. There's a method to the madness, so stick with us on this one. It's because in exactly that order, that's the order that animals stash fat as they start to age and mature. So the first depot is the internal fat that's laid down. And when you think about it, that's not really surprising because, of course, that internal or visceral fat's doing a really important job of looking after and protecting those vital organs. It's like cushions inside. Just You wouldn't want your heart being thumped around if you've got a steer that's got your pummeling you up against a uh, uh, set of rails in your yards for sure. And then, of course, when we see the second uh, depot, the subcut or back fat starting to be laid down and, again, said seen as an increase in uh, body condition score that we can either see or palpate on an animal, that's the external protective mechanisms starting to lay down. 
Then the next depot, as an animal continues to age and to fatten, we get more and more intermuscular fat being laid down. And then finally, once an animal is approaching maturity and reaching a heavier live weight as a percentage of its final mature weight, we start to, and finally, we mean finally, start to see the deposition of IMF or intramuscular fat starting to happen. And that's the sweet spot we want to reach because if that's going to be at the point where those animals are going to be processed, not only have we got a good yield on that animal in terms of a carcass, but we also have a type of meat that our consumers want and are starting to become a lot more motivated to pay for to have that type of high IMF meat on the plate. I guess as we start to understand the drivers of IMF deposition, you can already probably start to see where we're starting to go with this conversation. So summing up, IMF is the last of the fats to be laid down once all those other fat reserves are sorted. And that the IMF fat really isn't starting to be laid down until the final stages of finishing of that animal. That said, and we're going to talk more about this in the second part of the series, which will be episode 33, so tune in. There are aspects that we can influence IMF at an earlier stage of an animal's life, uh, including while still inside the tum of the cow or you. But hold that thought and come back and listen in to the second part around when we really start to get into the aspects around the animal and nutritional aspects uh, of IMF deposition. Now, one other aspect about this order of how animals lay down, firstly, internal visceral fat, subcut, then uh, intermuscular, then IMF, it's an important one to try and remember, mainly because that order in which fat is laid down is unfortunately backed out in the reverse order if the going gets tough for our animals. In other words, animals end up short of feed or they are stressed for a period of time or both in that whilst IMF is the last fat depot to be deposited, unfortunately, when things the going gets tough, that IMF is the first fat depot to be mobilised. So it's kind of last on to the fat bandwagon, but it's the first one off the fat bandwagon when things come unstuck during the finishing period. So if you have some finishing animals and something horrible has gone wrong on farm, for example, you've hit drought conditions, unprecedented drought conditions, during the finishing period, and they actually start to look like they are losing body condition score. So perhaps you have some steers, they were mud fat, they were lovely fat, uh, fat condition, ready to be finished, you can't get them away, uh, or something happens and they mobilise subcut fat, they lose body condition. Sadly, we can say that by the time they're mobilising the back fat, the IMF is probably long gone because that would have been the first fat depot to start to mobilise. So this is where feeding, and this is what we're going to cover in the next episode, is so important that we can't have your finishing animals mobilising body condition if the going gets tough, as the IMF will go first. That's us. We're going to finish up now for the first part of this two-part topic, all to do with IMF. If you've enjoyed this introduction to fat metabolism and IMF deposition of finishing animals, 
do subscribe to the Room and Room podcast so you don't miss episode 33 that carries on with a more detailed and kind of boots on the ground farm level discussion around IMF and finishing lambs and cattle, including nutrition, because of course we are unashamedly very much a nutrition focused podcast. In the meantime, thanks heaps for taking time to join us today. We really look forward to you tuning in and joining us again very, very soon. My name's Charlotte Westwood and Look, on behalf of myself and our loyal sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds, we hope that you have an awesome day out and about doing whatever you're up to. Catch up very soon. Cheers. Cheers.